Well, good morning. I'm John Wyman. I'm the missions pastor here at Fog, and I'm just really excited about the opportunity to, to come and sing and to worship with you, uh, to pray with you, and, and now to spend a little time just going through God's Word with you, because it's really rich, and it's really, I'm just really excited about what we're going to talk about. Our series in the book of Colossians, and today we're going to be in uh, Colossians 3, verse 18 through uh, 4.1. And, and what we're going to talk about today is the family. We're going to talk about making Christ preeminent in our family, putting him at the center of our family. And if you have your Bible with you or a Bible app, I'd invite you just to turn to Colossians 3.18. That's where we're going to start in a moment here. I do want to be clear about what we're talking about today. When we talk about the family, every reference we give today is to the biblical definition of a family. And that starts with the biblical definition of marriage, which is one man and one woman. And then we take that and we add the natural and the adopted children within that family. That's the family that we're talking about today. Now, my wife Dee and I, we, uh, we like to relax once in a while. Uh, we like to relax and watch a little TV. And one of the things we like is uh, two things, sports and sitcoms. And you know, it really doesn't matter when you grew up or you know, what age or generation you're in. There's lots of sitcoms to choose from. And, and one of the reasons that sitcoms are, are pretty funny is, quite frankly, they're dysfunctional. I, I will tell you that uh, it, this is not an official fog endorsement, by the way, but if you're asking me, I'd highly recommend the middle to you. Um, if you want to look for family dysfunction, that's your place to go. But as we watch our shows, and I may have experienced this at some point in your life, you watch a show, maybe you watch it for a couple of seasons, and you begin to identify with some of the characters. You begin to identify with some of the situations in that home. You may get to a point where you start nicknaming certain people that you know with your favorite character. Hey, is Urkel coming over today? And that's all kind of funny. Well, it is. It's not kind of, it is funny. But when the show's over and the laughter stops, and we can, no kidding, identify with that characteristic, with that situation, with that lack of function in the family, whether it's in ours or someone we know, well, then it's not quite so funny. And that leaves us searching for answers. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to take a look at what Paul writes to us in Colossians about the answers to some of these problems within the family. So I'd invite you to join me in, uh, we're going to start in Colossians 3.18, and we're going to go through 4.1. And in there, Paul writes, wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, excuse me, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So as we look at that, one of the things that's interesting, you, you may actually hear people say this, as you read through the book of Colossians, and it's, you know, it's not a long letter. As a matter of fact, Pastor Michael has challenged us to read that, that, that book every day. It's only 95 uh, verses. It's a pretty, relatively quick read. But as you read that, there are actually folks who, as they study Scripture, have, have questioned whether that passage is consistent or, or belongs in there, like it was some type of an add-in you know, later on. Absolutely an incorrect understanding of what that passage is. Because as you look in, in chapters 1, chapters 2, and the first half of chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul gives us teaching on, number one, the supremacy of Christ, how Christ is supreme above all others. Also talks about being alive in Christ and about what he calls putting on the new self. We've talked about that for the last couple of weeks. We take off those old characteristics before, or, or those old habits and the way we lived before we knew Christ, had a personal saving relationship with him, and we put on the new self of a life that's dedicated to Christ. And if that's true, and it is, then those same truths have to extend into the family. This passage is not just a continuation of what we've learned so far in chapters 1 through the first half of 3. It's, it's placing an emphasis on the fact that the truths of chapters 1 through 3 are vital to the foundational structure element in our lives, and that's the family. And to highlight that, I don't have a slide on this, but if you have your Bibles with you, to highlight that, we're going to go back one verse. We're going to go back to verse 17. That's the verse right before this passage starts. And in there, Paul writes, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, verse 17 doesn't complete one thought, and verse 18 starts another. Verse 17 lays the foundation that Paul then brings all the way through this entire passage. Obviously, this is the inspired word of God, so it's all strategically placed. But I would tell you that verse 17 is placed there exactly for the reason of putting Christ at the center of our family. It kind of reminds us, hey, before we start talking to family, let's remember that Christ is at the center of everything to include the family, to include the household. Now, so, so, so what that tells us is if we're looking through the, the teachings that we've seen so far in, verse, in chapters 1 through 3, if, if those don't extend to the family, then, then quite frankly, everything we've talked about to that point is a charade. We, we got one set of rules that we live in the house, and we got one set of rules that we live outside the house. And we know that that's absurd. That's not right. That's not the way God teaches us. So, so what this does is this says, hey, remember all that stuff we talked about, about putting on the new self, about Christ being preeminent? Well, guess what? It absolutely applies in the home as well. As I was doing some research, I, I, I found a quote. Uh, it was kind of an exchange uh, between some folks. And, and I found this quote from a pastor a couple of years ago. And here's what he said. He said, it's a sad commentary on our day that there is an urgent need to lift marriage out of the sitcom sewer and bring it into the bright, clear light of God's glory. Now, I understand he used the word marriage, but the marriage is the basis from which the family then starts. Now, if you think that's a little stuffy or over the top, let me, let me share some facts with you. 
about 40 to 50% of married couples in the United States will divorce. And, and of those, the ones who remarry, that rate is even higher in the follow-on marriages and the subsequent marriages. Now, there are organizations and people who will argue that, that fact because you, know, you can make statistics say whatever you want, but they can only bring it down to about 35%, as if a third is somehow some victory. That's a horrible, horrible statistic. It's a horrible fact. And I will tell you, in full disclosure, I'm divorced. I've gone through the pain and the shame of, of divorce. It's a terrible thing. More facts. 35% of children in the United States grow up in a one-parent home. And that, that percentage hasn't really changed a whole lot since about 2011. That's been a steady number. If you want to put real facts against that, that's 24 million children. It's a staggering number. The Center for Disease Control estimates that one in four women and one in four, excuse me, one in seven, one in four women and one in seven men will experience severe physical violence with, by an intimate partner at some point in their life. They further estimate that nearly half of all women and all men in the United States will experience psychological aggression by an intimate partner in their lifetime. These are sobering facts. These are scary facts. They're facts that lead us to ask, how do we get out of this? What's the answer to this? Because this isn't good enough. And, and I think as we go through this scripture today, I think what we're going to find is Paul's laying out some very good answers for us. So let's, let's take a look at some, some truths that Paul lays out for us about the family. And the first one I want to discuss is the fact that the family is important to God. God designed the family. If we were to go to Genesis... We can actually start in Genesis 2.24. We see there that God said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. They'll be free to go forth, be fruitful, and multiply to start a family. Genesis 1 and 2 clearly show us that the family was part of God's design from creation. We can also see that within the New Testament, there are three, I'm sorry, we can also see that within the New Testament, there are three different times in epistles, in letters, that provide specific teaching on the family. Ephesians, in Paul, when Paul writes his letter to the, to the church at Ephesus, in Ephesians 5.22 to 6.9, Paul talks about roles in the family, and he goes into a lot of detail on how a husband loves his wife, what that looks like. We're obviously studying uh, the, 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 the teaching today in Colossians 3. In 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7, Peter talks about husbands and wives honoring them, each other and, and, and gives some, some instruction on that as well. And there are numerous other references throughout the Bible on the family. Genesis, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, the Gospels, 1 Timothy, Titus, all address the relationships within the family. The third thing I'd highlight is our, verse, our passage today, it's nine, it's nine verses. It's, it's not very long. But seven times in those nine verses, Paul highlights God's interest and involvement in the family. Let's take a look at that real quick. It tells wives to submit their husbands as is fitting in the Lord, for children to obey their parents as it pleases the Lord. 
For workers, they should be fearing the Lord. And that they're working heartily as for the Lord because they know that their inheritance and their reward is from the Lord. In fact, as a worker, we are serving Christ. And he finally follows with the fact that we have a master in heaven. We have God in heaven. Seven times in nine verses, Paul highlights the fact that all our relationships are in God. The family is extremely important to God. The second fact I'd like to highlight, the second thing we can learn from this, is that the family is built on two-way relationships. If you look at the way Paul sets up this verse, he talks about everything in pairs. He talks about wives and husbands, he talks about children and parents, and he talks about workers and employers. This was kind of new thinking in the first century, especially within cities of the Roman, that were controlled by the Roman Empire. And, and quite frankly, sadly, there are those who would tell you it's new thinking or odd thinking today. But this is not right. That's not new thinking. It's not odd thinking. We're going to talk a minute here about function and order within the family and how we get that through the relationships that God describes through Paul's writing here. There's nothing new about this at all. As a matter of fact, when you look in the Bible, in each case where a biblical author writes about a family relationship, he describes a two-way relationship. You will not find a single case in the Bible of describing a one-way relationship within a family. It doesn't exist. Paul's teaching, this is an important point. Look at what Paul says. Paul talks about responsibilities within the family, not rights. He talks about responsibilities that, that, that people within the family have to each other, within each other, not the rights that they should be demanding from each other. That's a, that's a huge difference. The third thing, the third truth that I think comes out of this, this passage on the family is that the evidence of a Christian home is order, love, and dignity. Now, we're going to use the word roles quite a bit today. And it's important that we understand what our role is and what our role isn't anywhere in life. What's expected of us and, and what we can expect from others. Not a demanding expectation, but just what's going to happen, how we interact in our roles together. Because the truth is, when there aren't roles, there's just disorder. There's complete disorder. We could go through any number of, of sports analogies where folks don't, on the team don't, don't fulfill their roles and, and you'll end up on a blooper segment. We could bring it into our home. You know, my wife Dee just, God, I love her so much. But she, she does such a magnificent job of just managing our home. And we both understand that. And yesterday we had, we had stuff we had to do. We had First, we had to buy and laundry. Uh, I think we had some cleaning. Dishes were probably stacked a little higher than they would normally be. Um, those things happen in life. So as we were starting our day, you were kind of talking through it, and, and she said, hey, by the way, I need you to uh, go out to the store and get these things. That was simply a role. She wasn't bossing me around. She was just saying, hey, in, in this role... I." Of these things, I need you to go do this. I'll take care of these things. Because quite frankly, if you just put a list, hey, groceries, laundry, you might end up with two sets of groceries and stinky clothes. I mean, there's disorder there. It, you know, there's, there's no sense of order in it. And we talk about a home, a critics, like, like a home that sets certain standards. 
that there are certain routines that the family understands and goes through. That there's a feeling of order, that we feel and, and, and exhibit love and honesty and loyalty within the family. That gives us dignity because there's a value and there's a worth to each person in the home. And no one is more important than each other, than another. It's very interesting, in, 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 a, in a book I haven't read, uh, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, written uh, almost 250 years ago at this point, uh, Edward Gibbon wrote that, and, and in there he identified five basic reasons why great societies have died, have ceased to exist as a, as a great society, or civilization, excuse me. And among them he wrote, and I'm going to quote here, the undermining of the dignity and the sanctity of the home, which is the basis for human society. This passage that we're studying today, this isn't about who gets to boss who around in the house. It's got nothing to do with that at all. Paul addresses, you look at it, Paul addresses women, children, servants, masters. They're all equal members of the Christian household. And as you look at each of these, the constant truth is, although we have different roles, we all have equal value. That's the way God designed the family. Please don't confuse a role with a sense of worth or a sense of value. So with that foundation laid for, for some truths within the family, let's start now looking at some of the specific relationships, and there's three of them that we're going to talk about today, within the family. And the first one is wives and husbands. And notice the order in which Paul starts to address these relationships. He starts with the, the wife and the husband. As we saw in Genesis 2.24, the man shall leave his, his, his mother and his father, and he shall cleave to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. Look, if you can't get that relationship straight, you've got no chance to get the relationship straight with children. It's impossible. He starts there. He starts with the wife and the husband. So let's take a look and just see what Paul says here. Verse 18 and 19, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husband, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, I recognize that Colossians 3.18 can be a controversial verse with some people. And I think the reason for that is we try to separate verse 18 from verse 19, and that's wrong. Those are together. Husband and wife are one together. Verse 18 and 19 is described a relationship together. Submission doesn't mean inferior, inferiority. It simply means that the husband has been given the role. He's been given the responsibility by God to lead the family. It doesn't make him better. It simply defines his role. Now, I think why some folks have trouble with verse 18 is because we misuse or we distort or misunderstand the word submit or the word submission. So I want to talk about two truths real quick on the word submission. The first one is there's a significant difference between submitting and obeying. God does not tell the wife to obey. He tells her to submit. Now, obeying is under compulsion. You have to do it. Submission is a choice. You choose to. You choose to as a member of a relationship. Submission isn't being placed under the husband's thumb or something like that, like he's a tyrant. That's, that, that's despicable, quite frankly. Okay? Submission simply allows the family to maintain order. That's all it is. Again, it's, it's got nothing to do with value or worth of the members within the family. And, and I think I, the best analogy I can use to describe this would be driving. 
So, you know, the husband's driving down the street, and you know, the wife is with him. And by the way, please don't walk out of here and say, hey, Pastor John said it's unbiblical for you to drive. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> so the husband's driving, and he's driving safely. He's obeying the speed limit. He's taking what's a reasonable route to get wherever they're going. But the wife decides that this is not the best way to go. So she just reaches over and just yanks on the wheel. You know, because he's not doing it right. Look, eventually you do that enough, you're going to crash. You will crash when you do that enough. So submission is simply a voluntary act of, of, of choosing to follow your husband's leadership. That's all it's saying. Now, the second truth I want to talk about in submission, and you'll notice here, Paul says, submit to your husbands. He doesn't say submit to all men. He doesn't submit to any man, just your husband. That's an important distinction to understand here. Now, I will tell you this. There are moral limits to this submission. Wife does not. She's under no obligation, nor should she follow her husband when he's leading in sin. She can advise. She can explain. But at some point, there may come where she's got to just turn that one over to God. I mean, if your husband's idea of providing for his family is after we leave here, Family's going to jump in the car. You're going to go down to CVS. He's going to have you stay in the parking lot with the car running. He's going to take the kids in to create a distraction while he cleans out the cash register. That's not submission. That's stupid. Okay? <laughs> Don't follow that. That's sinful. That, that's not the definition of submitting to your husband. S submission simply allows the husband to lead. And, and I will say this um, for, for the wives. Just please understand, God has placed a rather, rather serious and sober responsibility on your husband to lead. So all this is saying is, let him lead. Let him fulfill his role. Now, as a wife, you can encourage him, and she should, encourage him, advise him, forgive him when we mess up, because we do, and we will again, full disclosure, but don't keep grabbing the steering wheel every time you would simply do it differently. Ladies, if this is a problem for you, if, if, if pride and control are an issue that you struggle with, I'm going to tell you that we've we got to work this out. That could be through groups. That could be through another discipling relationship. That, should, that could be through pastoral counseling. But, but as long as that be continues, if, if that's a problem for you and it continues to be a problem for you, the family is not going to function the way it should. That's just a fact. Now, I'm going to switch a little bit and we're going to talk about the other half of this relationship. And although it says husbands, I want to be very clear about this. If you're a male in the room, then we're talking to you. doesn't matter if you're 10 15 or 35 talking to you. And here's why. Godly men become godly boyfriends who become godly fiancés who become godly husbands. There is no switch in the back of your head that the pastor flips on the day of your wedding where you can go between, from being a knucklehead to being a loving husband. Can't happen. 
Now, that doesn't mean that if you don't have a relationship with Christ as a boyfriend and maybe you're doing some things that, that you shouldn't be doing, you're not treating your, 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 your girlfriend with respect, you're not loving on her as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, that, that you can't change. Let me give you a fact, folks. I'm kind of talking to the males again. If you've got a problem with this, here's some great news. Every single day you wake up, you have the opportunity to change. And if you mess it up today, you've got another opportunity tomorrow. Just because you didn't, you've had a problem to this point does not mean that that's the way it has to be forever. Okay? So if you're not in that godly progression of male to boyfriend to fiance to, to husband, jump on that merry-go-round, guys. And, and there's guys that can help you with that because this is vitally important. But males, we just talked about your wives allowing you to lead. So I, I just got one word for you. Lead. This is a problem in our society. Guys don't lead. We're shirking our responsibility. Now, I, if I offend you because you don't, good. Step up with me and let's help some of the guys that are doing that, all right? Too many guys are simply not fulfilling their role of responsibly leading their family in the name of diversity or some kind of weird, misguided search for peace or you know, pursuit of a personal goal, personal pleasure, or maybe they're just plain lazy. I'll tell you, your kids are watching. I mentioned a minute ago that I'm talking to the 10-year-olds and the 15-year-olds and the 25-year-olds. Guys, they're watching, and they're learning from you. They're learning when you lead well, and they're learning when you don't. Let's, let, not all men are like this, but all men can help fix this. So here's the question. How do we lead? I'll give you a simple answer. We lead by loving. That's what Paul's taken. Now, I want, to understand, I want you to understand the love that Paul is talking about here. And, and the Greek language is actually a lot more helpful in this discussion than the English language is. English language, we've got one word, love. I love pizza, I love the royals, I love my wife, and I love Saturdays off. <laughs> love them all. In Greek... There's actually four words. We're going to talk about three of them today. The first one is called agape. Agape is an unconditional, sacrificial love. The second one we're going to discuss is phileo. That's, that's love between friends. For instance, if I've got a close friend and leaving today and we shake hands, I say, I love you, brother. That's a brotherly love. That, that's phileo. And then the third is eros. It's a romantic love. The love that Paul is talking about here is agape. It's sacrificial. Because the truth is, romantic love may get you into a marriage, but it won't sustain a marriage. At some point, you're, gonna, you're both going to have to be sacrificial. And the husband, that's your role, to lead as a sacrificially loving. So let's, let's take a look for a minute of what it means for husbands to love their wives and not be harsh. And where I'd like to start, or the, the, the reference I'd like to use today, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, often called the love chapter. And we're going to be in verses 4 through 8. Now, I, I don't have that in your bulletin, but I'll just read that with you real quick here. In there, Paul writes, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, 
endures all things. Love never ends. So guys, I want us to really think about those words for a second here. In relation to our wives, in our personal relationship with our wives, how patient are we? When she's taking longer than we prefer to get ready to go. When she's late. When her story might be a tad longer than we would prefer. How patient are we, guys? I mean, really? That, that's that's going to like mess up a whole night because the story was two minutes too long? Are we rude to our wives? Are we snappy with them? Are we curt? Do we kind of get a little, you know, rude with them? Do we hide behind the responsibility of leadership only to use it as a tool to get our own way? I'm leading, therefore it's got to be this way. And just kind of trample right over our wives. And let's talk about being resentful for a second. Let's really think about this. Does our ego get in the way and lead us to have to outdo our wives? What if our wife, not what if, our wives are more successful than us in certain part areas of our lives? That's just a fact. Does that cause us to be in competition with them? Does that cause us to be resentful of that, to have to outdo that, or maybe put that, put, belittle that, or, or show, hey, here's where I'm better? What if, what if our family situation is, is, is such that wife doesn't have to work outside of the home? Do we sometimes get resentful that she doesn't have to get up as early and you know, get out of the door and, and, and get going? Or, or maybe when we come home, because, you know, she's been off all day, you know, and the house doesn't look the way, what are you laughing about, isn't that the way it goes? <laughs> the house doesn't look the way we think. Are we resentful of that, you know, because we went out and worked all day? Guys, I, 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 I beg you to take a hard look at this. Look, and if the answer to these questions is yes, then just get down on your knees and pray. Get down on your knees and pray with your wife. Work this out. Just like I said to the wise, if control and pride is a problem for you that's causing a, a dysfunction in your relationship, the same thing applies to the guys right now. And, and guys, I will tell you, we have a real problem with anger and with violence in our society and in our relationship. And it's, it's spinning out of control. It is mind-boggling the things that some guys think are acceptable in a relationship. It is unbelievable the words that a guy who says he loves, and I'm going to make the assumption, well, no, I've looked at the three words here, and none of them, none of them really work on this one. The words guys use to refer to their girlfriends, fiancés, or wives. This is a problem, and we cannot, look, it's not good enough not to say that, or not to use those words, not to post that stuff. That in itself is not good enough. Guys, we got to step up when we see that and say, no, that's not good enough. That's not acceptable. We got a responsibility, guys. Males, we can do better. We have to do better. Okay? We have to lead lovingly. So after talking about the roles and the relationships of wives and husbands. Paul continues to go deeper into the family relationships, and now he's, in his next uh, couple of verses, he talks about children and parents. 
And let's just take a look real quick at what he says here in verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. You'll notice here Paul does use the word obey. There's not a choice here. And this is grounded in multiple biblical references. It's the fifth commandment in Exodus 20. Proverbs 13, 19, 22, and 29 all talk about children obeying. Even in Luke 2, Luke records how as a child, Jesus, even though he was God, obeyed his earthly parents, and through that, he grew in wisdom. Now, again, for the children, this is not so somebody can boss you around. That's not what this is about, okay? It's about teaching. It's about safety. It's about security. It's about learning that it's not all about you. It's about training you for life. When we have a problem with a child who's just plain disobedient, and, and mom or dad says, hey, don't stick that butter knife in the electrical outlet, that's not a great time for a debate. That's a good time to drop the butter knife and do what you're told. That's kind of an easy example, but what happens when, when that's allowed, we have that debate and we allow that, those types of debates to continue on where the child does not learn to be obedient, and now the child is 16 or 17, we say, and don't go drinking tonight. What have we established in our child's relationship, in, his, in our child's understanding of right and wrong? I talked about learning, children learn that it's not all about them. No is a complete sentence, parents. It's okay sometimes. As a matter of fact, it's right sometimes. We've kind of made a mistake as parents over the last generation and a half or so where we, we put our kids up on a pedestal, which, by the way, if we're talking about the preeminence of Christ, they probably need to jump down there and let Christ get right back where he belongs. But we put our kids up on a pedestal and they can do no wrong and they can want for nothing. What a horrible way to teach your kids about life. Because I will tell you, anybody who's lived life knows it's nothing like that. We're not helping our parents. Or, excuse me, we're not helping our children. And by the way, this has an effect on a child's walk with God. And here's why it has an eternal consequence. If a child can't obey their earthly parents, how are they going to obey God? It's kind of a sobering question when you really think about it. But for the parents, excuse me, fathers, the husbands, it says, don't provoke your children. Now, this doesn't mean don't teach your children, don't parent your children. It doesn't mean hold back appropriate discipline when it's necessary just because you're afraid your kid will get mad at you. What it means is don't abuse your parental authority. Don't break your child's trust. You know, what's dad going to do this time? We talked about order before. Don't confuse your kids. We talked about dignity having kind of a set of rules and routines. Well, don't confuse and frustrate your children by changing the rules every time. Sometimes this is okay, sometimes it's not. Sometimes I talk to you uh, easily, sometimes I'm a silverback gorilla. I mean, it, it's just confusion and dysfunction throughout your family. Look, children need encouragement and nurturing. They don't need coddling, but they do need to be built up. They need to be challenged. They need to be taught, not messed with. 
Because what happens is they just become exasperated. They give up. There's no, there's no motivation. Why even try? And if that's not a sad enough thought, think about this for a second. Your kids will find that fulfillment. If it's not in your relationship, they'll find it somewhere else. They'll find it in drugs. They'll find it in alcohol. They'll find it in sex. They'll find it in destructive behaviors. They'll find it. These are sobering thoughts when we kind of talk about what these, what these problems do to our families, to our children. Now, when we talk about not provoking, this also includes uneven treatment of, children, of, of siblings. You know, one, one child can do no wrong, one child can do no right. Or maybe they're treated differently. Maybe we give expectations, but the children don't understand. We never explain what we're really expecting. They don't know. We push our child into activities, sports, music, the arts. You know, just force them to do those things. Or maybe unfulfilled promises. Look, the easiest way you can break a relationship with your child is to make them resent you and mistrust you. And then Paul moves into the third relationship, and that's workers and employees. Now, you'll notice in there, Paul uses words like bondservants and masters. Some verses actually use the word slave. Let's, let's be clear on two things. The Bible does not endorse slavery. It's an abomination. It's horrible. It was terrible then. It's terrible now. But the word that Paul uses in bond service actually has a wide range of definitions, up to and including what you consider a, like a, a living maid. Okay? So, so for that reason, and because none of us are slaves, we're going to talk about this in relation of employers and workers because, because the same principles apply. So let's take a look at what Paul says here. He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You'll notice here Paul places employers on the exact same obligation for fairness and for kindness as he does the workers. Both are equal in God's eyes. Each of us, no matter what we're doing in, in the work relationship, we are all individually responsible for our actions, regardless of where we are. And if we were to go back for a moment to Colossians 3.1, and in there Paul talks about seeking the things for above, from above. Excuse me. Paul reinforces that for the worker here. You look in verse 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Look, God has his own way of rewarding honorable and faithful work, even as as humans, human bosses neglect that. He can figure that one out. And, and you know, if, if your job and kind of getting over on your job is as good as it gets, quite frankly, that's, that's rather sad. Because the heavenly reward is much, much greater. So if, if, if you're... You know, what Paul's kind of referring to here as being, you know, an eye pleaser, a people pleaser, 
I serve as people pleasers. It's kind of when the boss is looking, okay, we'll, we'll do the right thing. But as soon as, as, soon as he's gone, hey, we're going to start you know, cheating, goofing off. Well, what happens then is you're not submitting to anybody's authority. You're just submitting to your own. You're just following yourself. Paul teaches that the master or the employer has an obligation for kindness and fairness while the bondservant and the worker is responsible for their lifestyle. Okay? When he says there's no partiality, that means for either the rich or the poor. There's no excuse for sin based on class or status. Look, if you're getting over, cheating's not going to improve your job situation. And by the way, it's still sin, so all you've done is compounded your problem. Now, I'm kind of a fan of uh, Steve Curtin, Steve, Stephen Curtis Chapman. Excuse me. Uh, he wrote a song. He did a song called Do Everything. And I think it really captures this, this thought real well. I'm just going to read uh, a couple of lines from that. In the song, Chapman sings, Maybe you're that guy with a suit and tie. Maybe your shirt says your name. You may be hooking up mergers, cooking up burgers, but at the end of the day, little stuff, big stuff, in between stuff, God sees it all the same. Look, the rich aren't better in God's eyes, and the poor aren't less accountable. Paul emphasizes that in, in, in verse 4.1. He says, every boss has a master's own, God. Look, if the human boss is unjust, God knows it. He knows how to fix that problem. Our responsibility as workers, our responsibility as bosses, wherever we are in that structure at work, it really goes right back to what we talked about in Colossians 3.17, doing all for the glory of God. Look, we've got a lot of questions about life, about our, our, our family situations. Look, things come up. We, we have, we do, we have, we have dysfunction in our families, and we're searching for answers. What Paul's done here is he's pointed us right back to Christ as the center of our family to fix those problems. That's what this is all about. Let's go to prayer. Lord, we just we thank you for, for your word. We, we thank you for the teaching that you gave us today. Lord, for our families for an understanding of how to work through some of the issues that we have within our families. What we'd ask you is, as, as we study the scriptures, we pray through it, as we have conversations with our, with our spouse and, and, and with our children, Lord, that you would convict us of those ways, those, those things in our, our, our relationships that, quite frankly, we need to change. Show, show us what those things are. Hold us accountable. Let, it, let us stand up with each other and help us each other walk through some of these problems, building each other up. Lord, as we go through our week, we just ask that, that you would continue to guide us, that we would live a life pleasing to you, that we would be a reflection of Jesus Christ, that, that the fact that we are a Christian is not a surprise to anyone, but it just shows in how we who we are, and how we act. Lord, we thank you for, for this message today. We thank you for the scripture. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.